the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. The show, if you haven't heard it before, is in different parts. The first part of the show, we usually talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And today, avoiding probate is very, very important. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, whatever. And I mean, most of our listeners, we know, you know, it's tough out there right now with the political situation. And what we decided we're going to talk about is bring up one of Justice Scalia's old speeches about the Constitution. And, you know, I think it's good for us to recenter and, and to have some hope for the future. You know, no matter what, it's not going to be the end of the world. And let's hope in the future, and we still do have a constitution. Uh, meanwhile, politically, the the people that have been on our show, Michael Tanousis and Nicole Maliotakis in Congress, she won her seat in Congress. Uh, looks Looks pretty good for uh, Vito Bruno. So Hooray! at least the people that have been on our show have, you know. Yeah, Michael Tanousis won as well. So yeah, yeah. That's our, okay. you know, our our area in Brooklyn really came across strong in terms yeah. of our candidates, but well, I think there was a lot of pushback against the powers that be that ru- that rule or ruin New York State and New York yeah. City. But in any event, let's focus some time on estate planning and elder law. And Beth, what's the first estate planning question for today? Okay, this one is from Pam. Hi, Mike. How do I create a living trust? And what are the drawbacks of a living trust? Well, basically, you know, a living trust is is kind of like a contract between a number of family members, ordinarily a number of family members. And, you know, I say this at our seminars when I do our seminars. Um, 90% of the trusts we do are between parents and children. Does it have to be? No. It could be between uncles and aunts, nephews and nieces. It can be significant others. Um, brothers, sisters, whatever. But like I said, 90% of the trusts we do are between parents and children. So let's say, how do you set up a trust? Basically, we go over the terms. We, You can talk to us. You can give us a call at our office at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And we can talk about what do you want to accomplish in a trust. And a trust is a very flexible document. The trust can say practically anything you want it to say. Now, 90% of the time when we're doing a trust, we have real estate, and we put the real estate in the trust, and you say, I leave I leave my property to my two children in two equal shares. Um, if something happens to one of my children, it goes to their children or whomever. Uh, the idea, the assets in the trust, it works like an insurance policy and an annuity. Assets in the trust go directly to the beneficiaries upon your passing. There's no court proceeding. There's no probate. And right now, because of the COVID restrictions and things like that, um, it takes a very, very long time to get through probate. And, you know, let's say you've got a house and you got a mortgage and you're paying the mortgage and you got to buy it for the house, but you can't close because it hasn't gone through court. It hasn't gone through probate. And that's what's going to happen if the deed to the house is in your name alone when you die. If it's in a trust, your children can sell the house a few days after you're gone with a death certificate. So, you know, if, if, it, it avoids probate, and that's the idea behind a trust. How hard is it? Basically, we sign a contract. Ordinarily, it's between parents and children. It could be a revocable trust, which is just parents. Either trust will avoid probate. It'll get the assets within reason, out tax-free, up to $5,850,000 in New York State, almost $12 million federally. And if the Republicans keep the Senate, that's not likely to change You know, over the next few years, despite the election um, or whatever that result's going to be. So what are the drawbacks of a trust? Well, ordinarily, there are no drawbacks of a trust, especially if it's revocable. If it's irrevocable, the drawback on the trust could be that if you get in a fight with your trustee, we've got to change everything over, and it could be work, and there could be problems, and the trustee may give you a hard time and whatever. So that's the drawback of the trust. Obviously, you have to pay for the fees to set up the trust, 
But usually, I think, comparison to the savings to your children, it's, it's, it's a relatively small amount. But the trust will avoid probate, get the assets out tax-free to the heirs, no court proceeding, no capital gains taxes. Assets put in the trust ordinarily avoid capital gains taxes. Now, here's one other thing. Please be wary about reading articles, because a lot of times articles are written by um, newspaper reporters. Sometimes you really don't understand the issues. And in some cases, even when they're written by lawyers, they're written by lawyers who graduated from law school who really haven't worked uh, steadily at a job and really don't understand the ins and outs. So I, I encourage you there. And there are some good articles, believe me, on the internet. I read some of them myself. But don't rely on what you read on the internet because, you know, you don't really know where the source is. If you know the source, then take it from there. Um, but if you have any questions about estate planning, you can always give us a call at our office at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Michael, how do they email a question to us? If you want to email us a question, you can reach us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, C-O-N-N-O-R-S. Okay, Beth, we have another question on the we pipeline. We do indeed, and it's another one about a trust. Dear Mr. Connors, I have an adult daughter who is disabled, and my friends are telling me I should have a supplemental needs trust for her. Should I do this now or make this part of my will? This way, any inheritance could go to the trust after my death. This is Celeste. Okay, well, that's one of the things you talk about. Depending on how old Celeste is, if she's relatively young and good health. Celeste is the mama. Yeah, it depends how old. Celeste is. If she's in oh, relatively good I shape, sure. she might just want to do a will, you know, leaving it for a disabled daughter. Very good. And then if she's an older person, we may want to set up a trust to avoid probate. And also, if you have trusts with a supplemental needs trust for a disabled child, those assets are protected from nursing home bills. Uh, if you have assets and trusts for a disabled child, child to collect Social Security disability, um, and that's not the only you know, definition, collecting Social Security disability. But if a child, you know, fit, fits the definition of disabled, we have assets and trust for that child, those assets can't be touched by nursing home bills and will avoid probate. And a lot also depends, can the child manage their own assets? I mean, is the person disabled because, um, you know, they're, they're in a wheelchair? Well, that would be different than if somebody's disabled because they, they have some affliction that keeps them from managing their own assets. So that's one of the other questions we want to put up. But the older you are, yes, I'd be more inclined to set up a trust um, when you're alive to avoid probate. The younger you are, just have a will as a backup. I mean, life's always a gamble. <clears throat> and you never know really what's going to happen in life. But that's why you have a will. And you should have a power of attorney so that if you have an unexpected stroke or disabling illness or you're in a car accident, the person on the power of attorney who hopefully is going to be a, you know, a relative you can trust will be able to establish the trust for you or switch assets into the trust if you become disabled, you have a car accident, um, you have a premature stroke, or depending on the age again, if you just have a stroke, you know, if you're 80 years old. So it's one of those things you talk about, you know, and this is what I always say, you know, when we talk about estate planning and elder law. There's no one right answer for everybody just off the mark. We've got to talk things over. You know, do you have relatives you can trust? Do you not have relatives you can trust? Is your child disabled physically but can handle things mentally? Is your child physically and mentally disabled? Uh, we've got to talk it over. And what's your health? If you're in good health and you're going to move three, four times, for the rest of your life, I, I might just do the will and would have have attorney backing it up in case something happens. But like I said, there's no one right answer for everybody. You know, you can't say, you know, what's the best for me? We have to talk it over and see what's best for you in regards to your family. Now, we're going to take a short break in a few seconds. Then we'll be listening to a speech by Justice Scalia at the Acton Institute from June 1997. And of course, I don't. Um, many of you may or may not know that the president of the Acton Institute is Father Sirico, who's been on our show more than a few times, grew up in Brooklyn. And as another note to fame, his brother was an actor who played Paulie Walnuts in The Soprano. So 
It's it's an interesting side note or whatever. But again, we're going to take the break, and then we're going to be listening to Justice Scalia at the Acton Institute in June 1997. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Thank you very much, Mr. Antonini, <clears throat> Bishop Mangling, Reverend Clergy, Governor Engler, Father Sirico, ladies and gentlemen. Dick and I were talking about how to say my first name uh, uh, before he introduced me. He got it wrong. I, I think he got it wrong. I don't know. My, my grandfather's name was Antonino, and it, it's just uh, a tradition in, in Sicilian families for the son to be named, the first son to be named after the paternal grandfather. And for some reason, my father dropped the, the O off. Maybe he thought he was anglicizing the name or something. I, I, but I've... <clears throat> But anyway, I mean, that's why my nickname is Nino, and I've, I've always said it Antonin, but, I, but it reminded me when you said Antonin, when, when, I was, uh, when I was nominated to the Supreme Court, the Washington Press Corps was furious because uh, they, they had not a clue that uh, 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 Chief Justice Berger was stepping down and that there were going to be two new appointments, one for the new Chief Justice and one to, uh, to replace uh, uh, Rehnquist, who was going to be Chief Justice. Uh, this, I mean... Those of you who haven't spent a lot of time in Washington cannot appreciate what, what a rare thing it is for something to be set that close. So we come into the, um, in, into the, uh, the, the White House press room, which is sort of a pit, which has these snarling creatures. You know, you're up on the stage, and they're, <coughs> they're, <coughs> they're all out there, and they were really mad because they didn't know about all this. <clears throat> and as we go in, I remember uh, um, some of President Reagan's staff <laughs> said to me as we were going in, well, you know, we've been, we've been working on him for, for a half hour. I think, I think he'll say Scalia right, but Antonin, I don't know. <laughs> and that's how it happened. It, it, it was all right. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk to you tonight about, about the Constitution, assuming my voice will hold out, I want to talk to you tonight about the Constitution of the United States, uh, something uh, to which I, I devote... Uh, a fair amount of my time these days. Um, I could begin by talking, and the prepared text I have here spends a, a fair amount of time uh, uh, telling you uh, 
what a remarkable document it is. And, and I'll, I'll skip over that part rather lightly because being the group you are, I, as <clears throat> I assume you know that. But maybe you forget it now and then. I mean, um, there, there is really nothing like it in the world. It, it is not a great constitution simply because it's our constitution. There is no constitution like it in the world, there, and there never will be. Never again in the history of mankind will, will a governing document be put together not by political parties figuring out how to passel out the power the best way or by, by conquering armies, but, but by a uh, uh, wait, May, June, July, four-month four seminar attended by the most prominent people in the country, which is how, how this, this document came to be. It will never happen again. Uh, from mid-May to mid-September, the, 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 the most respected and politically experienced people in the nation spent every day of the week in Philadelphia, uh, five days a week uh, uh, having their conferences, sometimes on Saturdays as well, and then discussing the things in the evening uh, when they got back to the inn. Um, that's a whole baseball season, or used to be a whole baseball season. I mean, <laughs> you, you know that, that it would not happen that way again today. I mean, uh, you, you know, the, the, the great men and women would go up to Philadelphia and they would adopt some general principles and say, well, you know, let, let the staff work out the details, and they'd go back to Washington. <laughs> But, you know, these are the greatest men in the country, Washington, Franklin, all of, all of the leaders. It, it will it'll never happen again. And, you know, when you get blasé about it, I, I always uh, uh, recall a wonderful trip I had uh, <clears throat> when I served in the Ford administration in the, in the Department of Justice. I was head of a division called the Office of Legal Counsel, which was the legal advisor to the government and, and to the White House. Um, we were invited to, uh, to go over to Rome to help uh, the Italian, uh, the corresponding office in the Italian government celebrate uh, their anniversary. Uh, it, it was an agency called the Avvocatore dello Stato, the state's advocate. They, they were the advice giver and also the litigating arm of the, of the uh, Ministry of Justice. So I went over along with Rex Lee, whom uh, many of you may know, a former Solicitor General and uh, then later President of uh, Brigham Young University. So we leave the Justice Department. Those of you that know the Justice Department, it's on Constitution Avenue, sort of a nice Art Deco building, very pleasant. And we go over to the offices of the Avocatora dello Stato, which are located in a building that was once the headquarters of the Augustinian Order where Martin Luther lived when he was in Rome. You know, the mind reels backward. Art Deco compared to Martin Luther. I mean, how, how, how nouveau, how nouveau we are, we Americans. And, and, and uh, I think very often you have that feeling when you go to Europe. You know, this is all so old and so venerable. And then it occurred to me, these guys, this, this Avogatora dello Stato, they were celebrating their 100th anniversary. Big deal. My, my country was about to celebrate at that time, coming close on to celebrating its 200th anniversary. We have been one people living under this, uh, this remarkable document for a century longer than Italy has been a nation, for a century longer than Germany has been a nation. France has been through five constitutions and something like uh, 11 different forms of government since, uh, since we started living under this constitution. So, you know, in, in many ways, we, we are the new kids on the block, we Americans. Uh, and I hope we retain uh, much of the good qualities that go with youth and vigor. But in one thing, we are the most ancient and the most venerable and the most experienced and I think the wisest. And that is in what, uh, what James Madison at that grand convention in Philadelphia, uh, what he called, what he and his, his colleagues were engaged in, the new science of government. We're the oldest and the best at that. Uh, so you should, uh, you should not think that this Constitution is special to us just because it's ours. It's not special because it's ours. It's special because it's a remarkable document and has maintained liberty and stability in this country for longer than any other written Constitution in the world. Uh, now, I... I that's telling you stuff that, that maybe you know already. 
what, what I want to talk about is what we are doing to our Constitution, or what we think we're doing to it when we, when we interpret it. Um, I am one of a small but hearty breed of uh, uh, interpretists left in the world who are called uh, textualists or originalists. Not, not strict constructionist. I, I am not a, I'm, I will get to that. I am not a strict constructionist. But I am a textualist. I believe you, uh, people ask me, well, you know, why, when did you become a textualist? What caused you to become a textualist? You know, as though you, when did you begin eating human beings? You know, as though it's some, it's some, as though it's some weird thing, you know. I, I mean, I, when did you begin to become not a textualist? You have a text. You should read the text. I, I. It, it, I'm not kidding. I'm always baffled at the amazement of these. But well, what a novel idea! You're a textualist. Uh, so I treat the uh, the uh, Constitution the way the way uh, laws, statutes have always been treated. We try to figure out what it meant when it was adopted. Now, I say I'm a textualist and an originalist. I do not believe that it, its meaning uh, evolves over generations so that to each age it contains everything that's uh, good and true and beautiful, even though it's not really written in there. Um, now, my, my philosophy was, until recently, not only not weird, it was orthodoxy. Everybody you know, at least said that, you know, the Constitution was that rock, that unchanging fundamental document that means today what it meant, and it's our salvation. And that's every, every, now, they didn't always follow it. I mean, it isn't that, that, you, that you didn't have willful judges who would twist and distort it in the past. Yes, you, you will always have willful judges. But the difference was in the good old days, they had the decency to lie about it. They would, you know, they, they would say that, you know, it used to mean that, but it, and that was a lie. Today, this is a major change because, uh, reflect upon this, hypocrisy is the beginning of virtue. To, today, you do not have to lie about it. You just simply say, well, it ought to mean that. And therefore, it means that. We, we indeed have uh, opinions. This is a development that has occurred probably in the last 35 years or so in uh, American constitutional jurisprudence. In, in our opinions uh, uh, involving the Eighth Amendment, uh, the amendment that prohibits cruel and unusual punishments, we state that what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment changes over time. The provision does not mean today what it meant in, uh, in 1791 when it was adopted. So that something that was not cruel and unusual punishment then may be cruel and unusual today because it, it evolves. According to, our opinions say, to, to, uh, to reflect the evolving standards of decency of a maturing society. That's the language in our, in our opinions. The evolving standards of decency that reflect a maturing society. Let me say it again. The evolving standards of decency. It, it is so Pollyannish, you know, sort of every day, in every way, we get better and better. Societies, you know. Societies only mature. They never rot. Uh, now... Now, that is, of course, not the frame of mind of a group of men who think there is a need for a Bill of Rights. They are less Pollyannish. They, they have less confidence that, uh, uh, that humanity uh, will be better or even, indeed, as good in the future as it is today. I mean, surely the whole purpose of a Bill of Rights is precisely to, uh, to stabilize certain provisions so that they cannot be changed by a future and less virtuous generation. That's the kind of frame of mind they had. And that frame of mind is reflected in 
my kind of constitution, but it is not reflected in the constitution that we have today and that uh, most lawyers, most judges, and worst of all, I'm afraid, most Americans believe in, and, and many of you probably believe in it, although you don't know it. That is, you have heard the phrase, the living constitution. The living constitution, that wonderful document that grows with the society that it governs so that it always reflects the best virtues of that society. It's a tough thing to argue against. I mean, I, I, am, I am trying to sell you a dead constitution, right? It, it's a, <laughs> this is a, you know, you're at a disadvantage right away. Uh, now, if, if, if you think that, that this is not true, though, uh, I, I had a, I speak to groups that come to the court now and then, student groups, and, and there was uh, one group I was told several years ago was, uh, was going to be there, and they said, this is a group that uh, is conducting a, a, co a nationwide competition on the Constitution. And I said, isn't that terrific? For high school students, it seems very good. An admirable group, I should talk to these kids. Well, it turns out that what the competition consists of is each school had various teams. They had a First Amendment team, a Fourth Amendment team, a Fifth Amendment team, a Sixth Amendment team, an Eighth Amendment team. And the way you win the competition is you figure out the, the most incredible, unbelievable new right that no one has ever thought of before that can be developed under the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or the Sixth Amendment. In other words, you develop this living constitution into... Uh, you know, what, uh, uh, be, be all that it can be, I guess. That's uh, sort of the, 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 the. Now, um, it has come to such a pass that, you know, when I was a kid growing up in New York, I was born in Trenton, Dick, but I, I, really, I really grew up in New York City, in Queens. And in those more simple days, uh, when people got frustrated with the, uh, uh, the state of affairs in, in the world or in government or almost anywhere, they would, they would pound the table and say, there ought to be a law. It was a good, healthy, democratic reaction, I thought. There ought to be a law against. In fact, there, there was a comic strip, there ought to be a law, about really obnoxious people that there ought to be a law against, you know, people playing boom boxes or whatever. Um, I haven't heard that phrase in years. People don't say that anymore. They really don't. I haven't heard it. What they now say is, it's unconstitutional. I mean, if there is anything that really is bad, why, it must be unconstitutional. Never mind the text. It doesn't matter. The text is irrelevant. We've got a due process clause. equal. We'll squeeze it in there somewhere. But if it's really bad, it has to be unconstitutional. Um, it, it's like, um, uh, to, to, to take another example from popular culture, there was, there, there was a while back an ad on, on television for some pizza sauce. I think it was Prego, something like Prego pizza sauce. I don't know. They sell it in the Midwest. They sell it. And, and, you know, the, the husband in, in this ad, he, uh, he asked his wife, well, you know, you're going to buy this store-bought and sauce. Um, I mean, aren't you going to make it yourself? Are you, doesn't have a, does it have oregano in it? She says, it's in there. He says, yeah, but it does, it, does, it, does it have pepper? It's in there. Does it have olive oil? It's in there. What about basil? It's in there. We got that kind of a constitution now. What do you want? You... <laughs> You want a right to an abortion? It's in there. You want a right to die? It's in there. Whatever is good and true and beautiful, never mind the text. It's irrelevant. Now, uh, you should not think that this, uh, this affliction, this depravity of mind that, uh, that reads a constitution uh, to say whatever you want it to say is, uh, is a, uh, uh, an affliction and depravity that is limited to liberals. It is not. Uh, it, 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 uh, conservatives are quite as willing to bend the Constitution to their will as, uh, as liberals are. Uh, the, the best example is last term. I think we released on the same day two opinions. One of them was the Romer opinion that, that found a, um, a, a new constitutional right uh, for homosexuals not to have uh, uh, a state uh, constitutional provision adopted by referendum which prevented uh, uh, government, including local government, from according any special privileges on the basis of homosexuality 
we struck that down as unconstitutional. I, I presume uh, relying on the uh, homosexual clause of the of the Bill of Rights. Uh, the same day, how and, and the liberals applauded that. The liberals loved it. The, the conservatives did not like it. The same day, however, we uh, released an opinion uh, in a case uh, involving BMW, the, uh, the automobile manufacturer, involving uh, punitive damages. Uh, BMW had gotten uh, hit with some incredible amount of uh, level of punitive damages for having sold as new cars which indeed had been scratched in transport and they, they painted over the scratches. They claimed it's a standard practice in the automotive uh, uh, industry, but the, but the Beamer purchaser said, yeah, but I didn't buy a car, I bought a Beamer. And the, uh, I guess it was the Arkansas jury believed uh, the purchasers and gave him an enormous amount of punitive damages. My court held it was unconstitutional to give excessive damages under, I suppose, the excessive damages clause of the Bill of Rights. <laughs> and and never, in 200 years, we had never said that, you know, you're entitled to due process, but if the jury comes in with the wrong answer and gives too much, you know, it's one of the costs of democracy. It, it's not a federal constitutional violation, but it is now a federal constitutional violation, at least if it's punitive damages. And the conservatives loved it. They loved it. Wonderful. Uh, so search your souls. I mean, if, if you're going to be honest about uh, reading the Constitution to say only what it says and not what you want it to say, you have to take the good with the bad. And, and you can't like the, uh, the, 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 the liberal invention or the, the conservative inventions, but dislike the liberal inventions. Um, I want to say something else about, about, about the living Constitution. As its name implies, <laughs> It is often uh, marketed on the uh, on the appeal that well, it's uh, it has to be a living constitution because it has to grow and expand with the society that it governs. It's it's sort of a it's it, it's an organic kind of a thing, you know. It, it, anthropomorphic, like the stock market brokers who you know you read in the paper, the stock market is uh, is resting for an assault on the on the seven thousand. <laughs> It's, it's there to, resting at some base camp, you know. Well, the, the, the Constitution is the same thing, you see. It, 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 it's like a human being, and if it, if it didn't expand and grow, it would become brittle and snap. So what these people, these living Constitution people want to bring to us is flexibility. The Constitution has to expand to ask yourself, ask yourself, do these people want to bring us flexibility? In my constitution, if you want a right to an abortion, create it the way most rights are created in democratic societies. Pass a law. You don't want it, pass a law the other way. You want the death penalty, pass a law having it. You don't want it, pass a law the other way. You want a right to die, pass a law. You don't want it, pass a law the other way. You want punitive damages, pass a law. You don't want it, I mean, that's flexibility. No, oh, these people don't want flexibility. They want what it is inevitably the function of a Bill of Rights or of a Constitution to provide, rigidity. They insist that there be no death penalty. Although the Constitution says, I mean, you know, is the death penalty cruel and unusual punishment under, so that it's, it's bad under the Eighth Amendment? I have sat with, uh, with no less than three, three colleagues, all retired now, who thought the death penalty was unconstitutional. Although it's mentioned in the Constitution, and no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due... What do you think they're talking about? We need to take a short break. We've been listening to Justice Scalia talk about the interpretation of the Constitution. Again, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back resuming his talk at the Acton Institute in 1997. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. 
Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. But never mind. I mean, uh, the, really, the text for, for someone who is not a textualist or an originalist, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You, you cannot imagine how, I, I'm not kidding you, I'm not exaggerating, the state of the, the, state of the law. It doesn't matter. For the, for the non-originalist, every day is a new day. You just look, I wonder if the death penalty is unconstitutional. <laughs> um, let me just take off a few of the problems. We're supposed to be out of here at quarter after. We'll be pretty close to quarter after. Um, problem one with the living constitution is legitimacy. If it indeed were the case that the Constitution is not, a, is not a statute, a text that judges can deal with the way they deal with any statute. And we don't think a statute changes its meaning over, over time. If it's not that, if it is sort of this aspirational document in, into which a society can pour all of its most profound beliefs, then why does my court have dibs on its interpretation? Um, you know, some of the Europeans that, that have copied our system of judicial review of legislative action. By the way, that's the only significant portion of our Constitution the Europeans have copied, not, none of the rest. Not the most central portions, such as real separation of powers, even between the executive and the legislature. That's real separation. Or, you know, a bicameral legislature to weaken it. They don't copy that because that, you know, that enfeebles uh, the government. They don't like an enfeebled government. And I'm, I'm sorry, this is all a parenthetical. I am sorry, by the way, that, that some Americans have begun to think the way the Europeans do. And they, you know, the Europeans say, oh, what, a, what an inefficient government, it's gridlock. And you hear Americans say, you know, what an inefficient government, it's gridlock. Yes, that's, that's what they meant it to be. <laughs> I mean, where was I? Unlike these new European constitutions that copy our system of judicial review, our constitution doesn't say the interpreter of the constitution shall be the Supreme Court. Um, and as I tell some of the foreign groups that visit the court, we, we are not a constitutional court. Not only don't we do exclusively constitutional interpretation, but what constitutional interpretation we do, we do by accident. Because that's what Marbury versus Madison says. It says, look, we're here to decide private disputes. But to decide private disputes, we have to apply the laws that are in effect. But I can't tell whether this law that's before me is really, a, it looks like a law, but if it contradicts the Constitution, it's not a law. So I have to decide whether it, you know, it's lawyer's work is what, is what John Marshall says in Marbury versus Madison. It's just lawyer's work. It's what lawyers and judges have always done to, to decide what is the law. But if that's not what our Constitution is, it's not a regular law. It's, it's you know, it's, it's this embodiment of, of principles. Then, uh, then Marbury versus Madison was wrong. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what the evolving standards of decency of, uh, of my maturing society are. The, the Congress knows much better than I. I'm really out of touch. 
The second problem, the second problem with, uh, with rejecting uh, textualism and, and originalism, and this, by the way, for those of you who want to debate this with, with the other side, this is really a killer argument. I, it's a terrible thing to do, but uh, ask the law professor on the other side. Okay, okay. Suppose I agree with you that originalism is not the proper method of interpretation. We'll use your method of interpretation. What is your criterion? Really, profound silence. Because the fact is that there is not even another candidate in the field. It is not enough to be a non-originalist to say, you know, I don't believe that what governs us is the original meaning of the text. That's, that just means you don't agree with me. If you're not an originalist, you've got to be something else. What is your theory of interpretation if it is not originalism? Non-originalism is not a theory. And, you know, once you, once you ask for that, you, you get as many different criteria as there are law professors or judges. The philosophy of Plato, uh, John Rawls, the philosophy of John Rawls, what? natural law, we all agree on that. Now, you either use originalism or you use nothing, which is, you know, in those areas where we've made up the Constitution, essentially uh, what we use. Uh, what, what do you imagine a judicial body does when it, for example, in, in the area of... Uh, of uh, abortion, Roe versus Wade, and all, and all of that. Uh, the the latest embodiment of our of our constitutional test is that uh, a state law is uh, is unconstitutional if it unduly burdens a woman's right to an abortion. Well, you know, how do I, how do you think I will decide that when when it comes to my court in the next case? Where where do I go to look up whether it's an undue burden? If I look up the statute books and the history books, I find. Any burden was not an undue burden. Where do I go? What law book do I run to? It's not a lawyer's question. So how do you think the courts decide these things, or whether there's a right to die? You sort of say, gee, I don't think it's, you think it's an undue burden? I don't think it's an undue burden. What about you? You think it's an undue burden? <laughs> how many? Well, that's five. Five is all it takes. It, it must be an undue burden. I mean, I... I, I am making light of it, but the fact is there is no criterion. If you want your judges to just, just vote their guts, fine, then if you think that's law. But once you abandon the original meaning, you know, originalists don't always agree. Brother, Brother Thomas and I, uh, uh, Clarence Thomas is an originalist. We, we will disagree as to what the original meaning was now and then. But we know what we're looking for anyway. I, I will conclude on, on, the, on the unhappy note that um, un, unless we turn back from this approach to the Constitution, I, I, I really think we, we, will, we will destroy the republic or destroy the value of a, of a written uh, Constitution and a written Bill of Rights. Uh, because ultimately, if the Constitution does not bear a fixed meaning that can be figured out by lawyers, uh, then its meaning will be determined by, who do you think? The majority. I mean, the people have come to figure out that I don't know anything. That I haven't learned at Harvard Law School any more about whether there's a right to, or whether there ought to be a right to die than, than they know. I mean, I, I don't know any more than Joe Sixpack. This is not a lawyer's question. The people have come to figure that out. And when they come to figure it out, they, they also figure out that they should select their Supreme Court justices, not on the basis of whether these people are good lawyers, because they're not doing lawyers' work anymore. They should rather select them on the basis of whether they agree with them on whether there ought to be a right to this, that, and the other thing. And that is what our confirmation hearings have you know, I was going to say deteriorated to, but it's not a deterioration. If that is what the Supreme Court is doing, that is what those hearings ought to be like. It's inevitable, though, the people will take that back to themselves. And it is the people whom the senators represent in those hearings. 
and they will ask one nominee after you, do you think there is a right to this in the Constitution? And he says, I don't think there is. You don't think there is? Why? I certainly think there is, and my constituents think there is, and if you don't think that right is not in that Constitution, I'm certainly not going to vote to confirm you. Now, what about this other right? You think that's... He's really quite, quite mad, conducting a mini-plebiscite on the meaning of the Constitution of the United States every time you select a new Supreme Court justice. But it will inevitably be that way, and it ought to be that way, if the Supreme Court is not doing the work of lawyers, which is doing the work of, of taking a text and interpreting it the way lawyers interpret texts to discern what was it, its original meaning. So um, I, I am not at all hopeful that it's possible to get back to where we were, really. It, it, is, it is such an alluring, enticing philosophy to believe that the Constitution means whatever you think it ought to mean. How do you talk somebody out of that? It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And judges who are non-originalists, who think the Constitution means what it ought to mean, they go home happy every night. <laughs> really. They never make a decision they don't like. I make a lot of constitutional decisions I don't like. I, I was the fifth vote on the in the flag burning case. The way because I am not a strict constructionist, my my reading of the First Amendment is that it protects freedom of expression, not just freedom of. I mean, if you interpret the First Amendment literally, it says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Well, I guess handwritten letters are neither speech nor press, so the, the government ought to be able to censor handwritten letters, right? Of course not. That's strict construction, but it's silly construction. You, you don't interpret a text that way. Uh, I interpret the First Amendment uh, when it says speech and press, it is using the figure of speech called synecdoche. Uh, you name a, a part to represent the whole, as in I see a sail. Speech and press represent expression. Anyway, that's the way I read, read, read the First Amendment. So I said, if somebody burns his own flag, it's his flag. Uh, He's doing it to show contempt for the government, contempt even for the flag. He's entitled to express contempt for the flag. So I was the fifth vote. That didn't make me happy. I do not like, I used to say, bearded people who go around burning. <laughs> who go around burning American flags. And I, came, and I came down to breakfast the next day, and my, my wife, the lovely Maureen, who, you know, is a sharp Irish tongue, is is standing at the stove humming stars and stripes forever. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but you don't have to put up with that kind of stuff if, if you're not an originalist, because the Constitution means what you want it to mean. It's wonderful. and It's very hard to talk people back out of it. I've tried to talk you back out of it tonight. I hope you will try to talk your friends back out of it. And, and you don't have to call it a dead constitution. Let's call it the enduring constitution. Thank you. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. 
The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. You know, it's reassuring to hear the words of Justice Scalia. I mean, you know, hopefully, you know, the Constitution has stood for 250 years and hopefully it'll stand for another 250 years. And I think right now we're we're, we're having challenges to our Constitution, but hopefully, you know, we'll be able to get through it. And, you know, speaking of things that just last a long time, in terms of this speech, this is, you know, over two decades old. And a lot of the things he's talking about here, a lot. I mean, when he goes on about confirmation hearings basically being sort of plebiscites on whether or not the justice agrees with you. What did we just see with Justice Barrett's confirmation process? The conflict between originalism and essentially the rule of law, the interpretation, you know, justices as interpreters of law, not as lawmakers, that battle is still going on today, very much so. And listen, you know, no matter what, whatever happens, you know, we have to thank President Trump for appointing three strong justices to the Supreme Court. That will be his lasting legacy, if nothing else. But, you know, thank you all for tuning in once again. Um, Keep the faith, no matter what. This is, you know, elections are tough every time. And just remember, you know, presidents come and go, but God is king. And that's something that we can take as a reassurance. Well, I guess it's time for David Kincaid to take us away for another week. Bye-bye, everybody. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away.